The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 470th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we are going to a location in Ohio yet again. We're sticking around Ohio. They have so many great haunted places here. They certainly do. This is the Wolcott Heritage Center, where the whole Wolcott house is located, which apparently is quite haunted by members of the family. And this is in Maumee, Ohio. Before we get into that, we have some people to welcome into the Spooktacular crew. Joan, Amy, Keisha, Josephine, Wendy with an I, and Amanda. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. Most of us have experienced a neighbor blasting a booming bass beat from their home or car at some point. We often wonder how the person playing the music has any of their hearing left. Well, here in Florida, in South Tampa, there have been some homeowners plagued by a similar type of bass sound so loud as to shake their homes. Many noise complaints were being filed with the local police department. However, the officers were unable to pinpoint the sound's origin. As it turns out, the culprits causing all the ruckus are hundreds of black drum fish. These fish can grow over 100 pounds. And this is the time of year that they gather for courtship and spawning. This noisy nookie is created by a specialized muscle called the sonic muscle striking the fish's swim bladder. This action can produce 165 decibels underwater at a low frequency. The sound can then travel through the ground and make its way into the area's waterfront homes. Apparently, the schools of migrating black drums are the largest numbers that locals have seen in years. The season of love for these frisky fishies getting their freak on lasts through spring. So hopefully the neighbors get accustomed to their amorous love rituals. One thing is for sure, however, passionate fish dropping a beat so loudly as to vibrate local homes certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In 
the month of January on the 10th in 1912, the Curtis Model E flying boat successfully completed its maiden flight. Glenn Hammond Curtis was a successful inventor and is credited for inventing the design of the float plane and the flying boat. Although his formal education extended only to 8th grade, his early interest in mechanics and inventions was evident at a young age. In 1901, he developed an enthusiasm for motorcycles when internal combustion engines became more available. It eventually took him into the world of aeronautics. This is when Curtis grew to become a leading contributor to the designing and building of various aircrafts, which led to the formation of the Curtis Aeroplane and Motor Company. That eventually became the Curtis Wright Corporation. His company produced the predominant civil and military aircraft for the U.S. Army and Navy in the interwar and World War II era. Curtis's first flying boat, the Model E, led a foundation for naval aviation. The centerpiece of the Wolcott Heritage Center is the whole Wolcott House, which was built in 1830 in Maumee, Ohio. This mansion is a great reflection of the pioneer family who built it and remained in that family for several generations before giving it to the Maumee Historical Society. Over the years, the society added seven other buildings to the center that all represent the early life of this historic city. The Wolcott family is intertwined with not only Maumee's history, but they represent a coming together of the Native American culture with early American pioneers. Mrs. Wolcott was the granddaughter of a Miami chief. Many people believe that several members of the Wolcott family might still be hanging around the property. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Wolcott Heritage Center. Ohio is located in northwest Ohio, about 10 miles from Toledo. Many tribes called the Maumee River Valley home before colonial times. This included the Odawa, Ojibwa, Shawnee, Potawatomi, and mainly Ottawa. These tribes joined with the British in the Northwest Territory before the War of 1812 to fight the Northwest Indian Wars. So we're still in that kind of same period of history that we were talking about on the last episode with the Raisin River Battlefield. The American victory over these forces at the Battle of Fallen Timbers in Maumee in 1794 would end those conflicts for a time. The Battle of Fallen Timbers took place on August 20, 1794. American settlers northwest of the Ohio River had been under threat from Native American tribes, particularly the Miami. General Mad Anthony Wayne had been placed in command of the Army, and he led a force of regulars and mounted Kentucky militia into Maumee, Ohio for what would be the final battle of the Northwest Indian War. The battle got its name from the trees that had been toppled in the area by a tornado near the Maumee River. The battle lasted less than an hour, with the American Army beating a Native American force led by Shawnee War Chief Blue Jacket. General Wayne's force lost 33 men, and the Native American group lost twice as many and were scattered. Major hostilities were ended, and the Treaty of Greenville was signed. This treaty set up a new boundary between the indigenous people's lands and territory for American settlement. The battleground became a National Historic Site in 1999 and is said to be haunted. 
On stormy nights and on August 20th, it is said that the ghosts of the lost souls reenact their bloody battle. How many battlefields do we hear the story of these residual figures still carrying on the battles from the past? A little insight into Matt Anthony. He's the only Pennsylvanian known to have two separate graves with body parts in both graves. Oh, wow. Perhaps that is why his spirit is at unrest. It is said that he is the second most frequently seen ghost on the East Coast, with Abraham Lincoln being the first. Interesting. That really blew my mind because, frankly, I didn't know who Matt Anthony was. And I don't know, Blackbeard's got to be giving both of these men a run for their money. (laughs) Because Blackbeard is all over the East Coast. I mean, he's got treasure all up and down it, too. So I think somebody might be taking a little bit of liberties with that there. Apparently, the general makes the trek his bones did from St. David's to Erie, looking for a couple of his bones that got lost in the process. Dropping off parts along the way. Bummer. (laughs) The spirit has also been seen in a lot of other various places where the Battle of Brandywine took place in New Jersey, New York, Virginia and Canada. He is often seen on a horse with fire flashing hooves, and that's the way they describe him. So I don't know what fire flashing means if they have fire underneath them. They like alliteration like I do. I mean, if he was missing his head, he would sound like the headless horseman. Right. Kelly, would you like to go down a little rabbit hole and find out a little bit more about how in the world this man has two separate graves with body parts in both? Sure, as long as I don't have to dig up any body parts. Well, that might be the rabbit hole we're going into. Maybe it's actually a grave. All right, you first. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. Wayne died on December 15th, 1796 in Erie, Pennsylvania at Fort Presque Isle while on active duty. He was only 51. Following his wishes, Wayne wearing his uniform was buried two days after his death in a plain wooden coffin at the foot of the flagstaff of the Post's blockhouse. The top of the coffin bore his initials, age, and the year of his death in brass tacks. And this was actually a pretty plain burial for him. There wasn't anything elaborate about it. Had it not been for a strange twist of fate, Matt Anthony Wayne would have laid there in peace for eternity. For 12 years, the remains of Wayne remained undisturbed in that plain grave. However, some thought his burial was not fitting for such a great war hero. And in 1809, Wayne's family decided to bring him home to rest in St. David's Church Cemetery, closer to his home in Radnor Township, not far from Valley Forge. When Wayne's son, Colonel Isaac Wayne, had the coffin open in Erie, everyone was shocked. Instead of a crumbling pile of bones, they found a body in an excellent state of preservation. Isaac had come ill-prepared to move an entire body across the state, meaning I guess he didn't have another coffin to put it in. A local physician, Dr. James Wallace, came up with a remedy. He suggested they put Wayne's body in a large vat and boil it to separate the flesh from the bone. Oh my word. (laughs) What? I mean, it's bad enough this guy comes over and goes, oh, I know how to take care of this. But the son's going to be like, okay. Making Papa porridge? Or- <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, that's Dad's a big deal. Getting his Holy. body in there. The oh. general's flesh and clothing were reinterred beneath the blockhouse. And I was like boiling them, I guess, just separate them. So you still had the, mm-hmm. oh, I won't get into all the details there. But meanwhile, Isaac took his father's bones in the back of a wagon and made the long 400 mile journey across the state along what is now U.S. Route 322. So if you're ever on U.S. Route 322, just think of Matt Anthony and his bones going across there. This may be hard to believe, but Pennsylvanian roads were even worse in the early 1800s, apparently. They were bumpy paths full of rocks, ruts and tree stumps. 
When Isaac finally arrived at the gravesite and attempted to reassemble the skeleton, the family discovered to their horror that several of the bones were missing. They just bounced right on out of that wagon. Oh, good grief. So now you know why Mad Anthony is very upset about why he's mad. I I, I just can't even right now. They boiled him. (laughs) I just, I I can't. I mean, (laughs) if you're going to just take parts, then I'm like, do you got a machete and you know oh great yeah that's even better babe (laughs) oh my gosh i'm just like if you're gonna reinter somebody aren't you just gonna take expect that you're gonna take the whole thing i might retch on my way up out of this rabbit hole (laughs) (laughs) how are we gonna get out of here you know what we didn't bring anything with us we're gonna need some help mort mort oh looky some damsels in distress we need some help getting out of this hole go grab a rope sure thing I have a special rope I keep around for emergencies. Um, Mort, this rope has a noose at the end of it. Just stick your foot in the loop. As long as it's not my neck. (laughs) We're going to have to trust Mort. Oh, you can trust me. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Here we go. The early settlement of Maumee would occur in 1817 when the town was platted out and it became a major transportation point to Lake Erie. In 1840, Maumee became a county seat and was referred to by some as the Great City of the West after the completion of the Erie Canal in that same year. A post office and federal custom house were set up in Maumee. The name is a derivative of the tribal name Miami. Things were prosperous here for a few years, but eventually the big steamships started being introduced to the Great Lakes and they couldn't travel the river. Maumee lost the county seat in 1854 and became a small town that still holds on to its historic roots, with many early buildings and homes still dotting the city. One of these locations is the whole Walcott House. William Wells was born in 1770 and was orphaned at an early age. At the age of 14, he was captured along with three companions by the Miami tribe. The Miami chief, Kaweahata, renamed William Apiconit, which meant carrot. So I don't know if William had red hair. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know why we'd call him carrot. He married a Native American and they had a child, and William went on to become one of Ohio's best-known frontiersmen. But not before his wife and child were captured by Kentuckians during a raid. He never saw them again. He became great friends with Chief Little Turtle and married his daughter with whom he had four children. These two men made an agreement for Wells to join the American forces and try to bring peace between the Americans and Miami. And Little Turtle would work with the Native Americans to do the same. So they're good friends. They see that they're, it's kind of like when you have a group of friends and you have two sets of them and they don't like each other, but you guys like to hang out and you want your whole groups to be together. So they're working on each end to be like, hey, let's be friendly with each other. Wells served as a scout during the Battle of Fallen Timbers and helped negotiate the Treaty of Greenville that took away all Native American land in Ohio, save for a small bit in the northwest corner. Wells later died during the War of 1812. One of his children was named Mary, and she would marry a man named James Walcott. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Kelly, there are a lot of people moving to Florida. There sure are. And I don't blame them because the weather here is just spectacular. We have beaches on both sides. It's just a great state to live in. And if you're moving to Central Florida, we have the realtor for you. Sunbright Realty, LLC. 
Yeah, we love Lou. He's our neighbor. We trust him with taking care of our yard and our home. And when it comes to real estate, they have over 20 years of combined experience in the real estate business. When you look online, there's five-star ratings on Facebook, and they have a 4.9-star rating on Google. And I want to share one of those reviews here from Sandra. Lou was our broker for the sale of our much-loved Florida home, and his understanding of how much we love the home made selling it easier for us. Lou went out of his way to help us when we had many questions. We video called him many times, and he always took our calls. His help in returning equipment as we weren't able to was really kind. He also helped get a gift for the new owner from us. His willingness to help with these things and other things not pertaining to his role are what make Lou stand out. We would highly recommend Sunbright Realty if you're looking to sell your Florida home. And Kelly, you know, it really is the little things when it comes to any business, especially if you're going through the process of either buying or selling a home. And that's why people should always look on the bright side. You can find out more at sunbrightrealty.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Mary was born in 1800, and as we said, her father died during the War of 1812. Her mother, Wanagopeth, which means sweet breeze, had died in 1805 or 1806, so Mary went to live with her uncle Samuel Wells in Kentucky after her father died. She moved to Missouri, where she met and married James Walcott in 1821. Walcott had been born in 1789, was a descendant of Declaration of Independence signer Oliver Walcott, and was a Connecticut Yankee and entrepreneur who had his sights set on building a shipping business. The completion of the Erie Canal attracted people like the Walcotts to this area of Ohio, and they had the money to buy land after Mary received reparations from the U.S. government that were paid to the Miami in 1818 and 1827. The couple used the money to buy 300 acres along the Maumee River, and built a little log cabin. They then established a shipbuilding, shipping, and merchandising center. The couple had dreams of a large family, and they had seven children, but only five would live into adulthood. Mary was a devout Christian and convinced James to build a chapel on their property and invited family and neighbors to worship there. The shipping business was very successful, with the Walcotts running two steamships, and they soon had the money to build their dream home. I guess a lot of families did this when they would buy up land. They would build themselves a log cabin while they worked on the other one. Usually you'd kind of do that in two different places. It's my understanding the Walcotts are just going to build kind of around that original log cabin and attach to it and things like that. In 1830, the Walcotts completed their mansion to replace the log cabin. The mansion was designed by James Walcott himself. He was actually an architect among all these other things that he did. And this was designed in the Federalist and Classical architectural styles. It had 14 rooms and was two stories with a distinctive two-story front porch with an elliptical arch centered in the gable and both porches have four plain columns. So they're almost like those Doric Ionic columns that you see in the federal property, but these are very, very plain. They're, they're just kind of squared off things. The foundation was made of rubble stone and the kitchen was down in the cellar. The interior has a large center hall with a curved stairway and the woodwork is black walnut. 
Many pieces of original antebellum furnishings and family heirlooms still remain in the house. James Walcott went on to serve on the city council in 1838, and he was the first president to preside over it. He became mayor of Maumee in 1843 and held that position for 16 years. He died in 1873 at the age of 83. Mary preceded him in death by several years as she passed in 1843. So she died like 30 years before him. He never did remarry. The mansion stayed in just this one family through four generations until the Walcott's great-granddaughter, Rilla Hull, gave the home to the Maumee Valley Historical Society in 1957 with the wish that it become a museum showcasing the early pioneers of the area and keeping the memories of three generations of the Walcott family. I always love it when these houses have stayed in the same family the entire time. Definitely. The Wolcott House Museum opened in 1965, and this museum showcases the lifestyles of these early pioneers, along with Mary Wolcott's Miami heritage. This museum does more than just share the way life was early on the Maumee River, but it stands as a symbol of a bridge across two cultures. And that really was the legacy of Mary Wells Wolcott. The complex is referred to as the Wolcott Heritage Center and has eight buildings on the property, with only the whole Wolcott house being original to the property. There's the Frederick House that was built in 1840 and serves as the Welcome Center. This was built in the Greek Revival style and had originally stood on East Wayne Street and Gibbs Street in Uptown Maumee. The house was moved here in 1971. The Maumee Memorabilia Museum was built in 1901. There is a log house that dates to the 1850s that shows the common structure of that time with hewn logs squared so that they fit more tightly together. This had once sat on the north bank of the Miami and Erie Canal. A James Love owned it in 1893 and he added a front porch and wood floor and it was later inherited by Calvin Love, the mayor of Maumee in 1913, and he gave it to a World War II veteran who used it for storage. Oh man! The man donated it to the Historical Society in 1963, and it was moved to the complex. The Gilbert Flanagan House is a good example of a home that would have been owned by a middle-class family in the 1800s. It was built in 1841 and is a New England salt box house done in the Greek Revival style. It has the sloping roof of the salt box. This style of home had a parlor bedroom behind the parlor, which is where the best bed in the house was kept for company. It never had electricity, plumbing, or heating, and was donated to the University of Toledo in 1965, and then later sold to the Historical Society. The Maumee Clover Leaf Depot was built in 1888 and serviced the Toledo and Grand Rapids Railroad. This had once been located on Sophia Street in Maumee. There was a telegraph room as part of the depot as well. It was donated to the Historical Society in 1971. The Box Schoolhouse is a one-room schoolhouse that was built in 1850 by local farmers. The teacher's desk is an original schoolmaster's desk circa 1840 to 1860, and the wainscoting and pegs and box stove are original to the building. The schoolhouse joined the complex in 2006. And finally, there is the Monclova Country Church, which was built in 1901 for the Radical United Brethren Congregation in Monclova. This church was built in the Gothic Revival style and has a rebuilt, straightforward bell tower. The original bell tower was destroyed by fire, unfortunately. The original congregation's bishop was Milton Wright, who was the father of Orville and Wilbur Wright. The church joined the complex in 1985. And Kelly, interestingly enough, the history segment that we did included the Wright being in there behind Curtis, and it was the Wright brothers who he joined companies with. Exactly. We always get that synchronicity. I mean, I'm, I'm writing the histories and 
the oddities and I had no idea what you were even doing. I no. had that written before you even did this. Yeah. And our next episode is going to hit on this too. And it had nothing to do with the fact that we were talking about Orville and Wilbur right on this one. During the Halloween season, the museum embraces its haunted reputation, offering ghost tours and hunts. Visitors to the Wolcott House have reported being touched or tapped on the shoulder by something they can't see. Some have seen shadow figures darting from one room to the next, and disembodied footsteps are heard. Staff and guests claim that spirits of the Wolcott family are continuing on in the house in the afterlife. A paranormal team was asked to come in and investigate in 2002 by the curator at the time, Chuck Jacobs. He and his wife had been in the house and felt something had chased them. The investigation caught some orbs of light and they felt they contacted three spirits, a strong male and female and a weaker female. Amy Danforth was a special events coordinator back in 2015 and she felt that the spirits in the house were friendly and helpful because they'd helped her. She was having a hard time carrying a floral arrangement in the house one day it needed to get through the large wooden door that separated the pantry from the kitchen. She started to look for somewhere to set down the arrangement when the heavy door slowly swung open and stayed that way long enough for her to walk through. She said, thank you, as she passed through, fully expecting to see someone on the other side of the door. No one was there, and the door wouldn't just hold itself open for that length of time. She knew it had to be a ghost. Zach was a volunteer at Walcott House for years, and he'd had enough experiences to convince him that the home was haunted. Many times when he was alone in the museum, he felt as though he were not alone. Eyes he couldn't see seemed to be on him. He wrote, Every month there'd be a tea hosted at the Walcott House, and I would be in charge of taking down tables and chairs. One day I was taking down some chairs and suddenly heard the soft sounds of a piano playing. There is one piano in the house, and I was a little shocked to hear it playing. So I slowly walked to the room where the piano was, and about 10 feet before I walked into the room, the piano stopped playing. When I did get to the room, no one was there. Another instance I had was when I had to go into a storage room in the kitchen and get some items. While I was in there, I heard a thump, almost like something had fallen. He eventually found the source of the sound, which was an apple from a decorative display that was now sitting in the middle of the floor. This tended to happen a lot. Zach continued, I've had this happen to me two different times, and sometimes when I was downstairs sweeping the floors or mopping, it would sound like someone was walking around upstairs and would kind of frighten me when it happened. I've also had some other instances where I would be in another room and a glass showcase would just start rattling. Glad it didn't like tip over. Yeah, no kidding. The Wolcott Heritage Center is a large property that really needs a proper investigation through all of the buildings. One thing is for certain, the Walcott family is inextricably linked to this property because they owned it for so long. Are some of them still here? Is the Walcott Heritage Center haunted? That, that is for you to decide. decide. And of course, we're saying it needs to have a proper investigation because there could be hauntings going on in all of these buildings, but I didn't hear anything about the other buildings on the property. We know those train depots seem to be notorious for having hauntings, so I'd love to get in that old place and sit in the telegraph room and see if you get any telegraphs from the past. <laughs> Hear anything beeping? It's a ghost. Sounds like a really cool place to check out. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. 
And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Occasionally we have people post stuff in the Spooktacular crew, and Marie did that. She said, I have a strange story to tell that has to do with 9-11. My husband and I had an automotive repair business for many years here in New Hampshire. The widow of one of the passengers killed when his hijacked plane hit the World Trade Center started coming to us not long after that. Fast forward to 2017 when my husband and I happened to be in New York City and went to the World Trade Center Memorial. If you've ever been there or ever seen pictures, there are two huge pits in the footprint of the towers, and each one has names of the victims inscribed around the edges. When I walked up to the first one, the very first name I saw was that of this customer's husband. Oh, wow. What are the odds since over 2,900 people lost their lives? Just an interesting little story anyways. No, not in our spooktacular crew. It's not an interesting story. That's synchronicity. There are no coincidences. That was her husband saying hi to you, I think. Because, Kelly, you and I have been to that memorial. It is huge. It is. And there are obviously a ton of names around them. And for you to walk up and the first name you see. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, that was not happenstance. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, Marie. Want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. This noisy nookie is created by a specialized muscle called the sonic muscle. Nookie? (laughs) Did you just say nookie for fish? Noisy nookie, yes. (laughs) The season of love for these frisky fishies getting their freak on lasts through spring. Are you you laughing? Did I make a funny? You like how I write these? (laughs) I love your alliteration. Frisky fishies getting their freak on. (laughs) You know I love alliteration. (laughs) Glenn Hammond Curtis was a successful. Successful. You put Curtis and successful together just to get me. I did it on purpose. (laughs) You know what? We didn't bring anything with us. We're going to need some help. Mort. Mort. Uh... And Kiwi responds. (laughs) Kiwi's the one screaming back. Listen to the little birdie. He thinks he's a hero.